Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. I'm your host, Hannah MacDonald, and I'm hopefully your new bookish pal. Welcome to a very special episode in collaboration with the 2023 Polari Prize. The Polari Prize is the UK and Ireland's only dedicated LGBTQ plus book prize, founded by author and activist Paul Burston. Today, I'm joined by winner of this year's Polari Book Prize, Julia Armfield. Julia is a writer living in London. Her work has been published in Granta, The White Review and Best British Short Stories 2019 and 2021. In 2018, Julia was longlisted for the Deborah Rogers Award and won the White Review Short Story Prize. In 2019, she was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award and in 2020, she won the Pushcart Prize. Her short story collection, Salt Slow, was published in 2019 and her debut novel, Our Wives Under the Sea, was published in 2022 when it was also shortlisted for the Foils Fiction Book of the Year Award. Joelle Taylor, judge of this year's Polari Book Prize, said, Our Wives Under the Sea opens up what we believe is possible from queer writing. It is a strange, speculative, poetic and thrilling novel, a heart turner as much as a page turner. Julia, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. And as I just mentioned to you before, our second ever episode of the podcast was on your book. (laughs) So I, of course, leapt at the chance at getting to have you on. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we have to start with our favourite question on the podcast, which is what are you currently reading? So I was just on holiday, so I needed to finish the thing that I was reading before I went on holiday, because otherwise, you you know, you take like the last part of a book with you and it's terrible so I was yeah I just finished reading a non-fiction book called K2 Triumph and Tragedy by uh, Jim Curran which was about uh, the uh, K2 disaster in the 1980s because that's unfortunately what I'm into uh, but then on holiday I started rereading Lolita which I haven't read since I was 16 and my god it is just one of the best books ever written like you you think you appreciate something when you're 16 and then you you appreciate it in a whole different level when you're an actual human being yeah I read that for the first time in 2020 it was just one of them books that I just completely missed and I was totally blown away by it and I wasn't expecting it feels kind of terrible to say that you enjoyed it I don't know it feels kind of wrong but the writing I enjoyed I thought it was like so well executed and so well done it's Um, It's, I don't know whether it's because he's writing in a second language whether perhaps he is translating in his head when he's doing it but I just think he's doing completely different things with sentence structure with the way that it flows the the rhythm of it is just astonishing to me I think it's just an incredible book completely now we are obviously you are obviously here because of your Polari prize win so congratulations on that how are you feeling it's amazing it's always <laughs> I think I, I I completely blacked out when I was actually um when they announced my name and so I don't really <laughs> remember anything I said and I've had to sort of put it back together afterwards from like jigsaw pieces that people have given me but <laughs> it's kind of I, I do remember that Joelle when when the prize was announced Joelle said that prizes kind of mean everything and mean absolutely nothing but it is it's something different when it's a prize from like your people and I think that that really meant something to me I think it's it's so important to have a prize which is 
for queer people, for trans mm -hmm. people, for non-binary people, because I think that now more than ever, we really need a space and we need a space where we can like love and support each other. Um, and so it just feels really, really important to be recognized by that. So it was, yeah, it was amazing. It was a really nice night. And then we went to Five Guys like directly afterwards and like we had a really good hot dog. So it's a good old time. That is amazing. What well, everyone from the prize went to Five oh, God, no, Guys. No, no, no. <laughs> Like we all just like went down the road all of us together no it's just me and my friends but um, yeah it was really nice yeah I was fully imagining all of you in like really formal attire <laughs> waltzing into five guys they're like what is going on saying like excuse me but we need 45 of these <laughs> oh that sounds amazing I was really gutted that we didn't get down to the evening but mm. um obviously we're based in Manchester and it was in London and yeah I was uh very sad that we couldn't get there but it sounded like such an amazing night now obviously I said before that we did our second episode on our wives under the sea and in that episode our OG listeners will remember that I mentioned that last year we came to an event that you did at Blackwell's in Manchester with Missouri Williams and we spoke to you and told you that we were going to be doing this episode and you actually told me off at the time because I was doing an episode having I doing an episode on your book having never read Stephen King and oh you were God, so yes. appalled by it how dare you I have you yet and still to this day I haven't read a Stephen King I am so sorry <laughs> you're like I'm leaving this call right now <laughs> and I have actually I went straight to my stepdad after we recorded that episode and was like I need to get my hands on a Stephen King and my stepdad's a big Stephen King fan so mm -hmm. I was like just give me something like I need to have read this and it's just sat on my TBR pile it's the shining and it's just sat oh. there and I feel so intimidated by it really? I'm so scared I don't so know because he's such a prolific author that I'm like oh I, I don't know I feel quite nervous it's how I sometimes feel about like <laughs> classics that I've not attempted yet right okay I get you that I'm kind of scared to delve into them in case like I don't know I feel too stupid <laughs> mm. oh oh my god no there's absolutely there's no world in which you can feel too stupid for for uncle steve there are some there is uncle some, steve there are some there are some things that he's doing that you'll be like well i mean now i feel i feel bad for him but like <laughs> I, I love him so much and i will i'm not going to do it on the podcast but i'll give you a whole list of things that you need to read in the right order but yeah it's i think that the thing that's wonderful about him though is not his accessibility, because I think that's the wrong word, but I think that there is there is always something that is the perfect novel for you that he happens to have written. And they're all different ones. Like, I think everybody will find their book, but I think he is so wonderful at creating somewhere in his oeuvre for you, there will be a novel that just completely like reaches out to you. Mm -hmm. And it can take a while to find it. And sometimes it can be a really, really weird one. Um, But yeah, I just, I think he has, I think he has something for everyone. I love that. And I normally do the podcast with Lydia my co-host and mm. she is a massive Stephen King fan like he's her favorite author um so she really resents the fact that I've never read a Stephen King yes. and, and it feels a like <laughs> and it feels like a complete waste of time that she's not on this <laughs> because she I mean to be fair it's probably a good thing that she's not on it because I feel like we wouldn't get any other questions asked it would just be you two having a back and forth on Stephen King and um, but her favorite book of his is The Stand and oh. She says that even though it's like something ridiculous, like a thousand pages long, she's like, it's, it's worth every page. Like, oh, yeah, completely. it's brilliant. I think it's one of my wife's favorites as well. I think mine is, mine is it. Traditionally enough, I love it so much. <laughs> and I love, 
do I love? I love Salem's Lot and I love The Shining. And whilst it's not necessarily scary in quite the same way, I love Misery. I just think Misery is the most like perfectly constructed novel. It's it's incredible. But yeah. I need to get the full list off you when we finish recording. All right, I'll do that. That'd be good. <laughs> How much do you feel that he's inspired the way that you write today? I think it's interesting because obviously in some ways we're operating in quite like different territories because mm-hmm. I mean a thing with Stephen King is that he's constantly writing about writers who are very resentful about the fact that they're not considered literary enough um <laughs> and that, that is definitely like a bugbear that he, he used to have and I think that we we're operating in interesting spaces in that like I I don't think that genre snobbery as writers gets us anywhere because I think that if you're writing horror if you're writing fantasy if you're writing sci-fi like all of those things are just the things that you're interested in the things that you're writing and I don't think that placing say literary fiction above those things does us any good at all because good literary fiction is always drawing off genre I think good literary fiction is always taking from a lot of different places and so I think the thing about Stephen King for me has always just been he is such a genius with plot in a way that I will never even be able to touch because I'm not very good at plot. I'm very good at all. I'm very good at vibes. I'm very good at all the things around plot and plot is always what's difficult for me. And so I think the thing about him is that I always like to return to him as an example of how to just feel completely confident in what you're doing, even if what you're doing is completely insane. And (laughs) I just think that that's, it's so important as writers to look outside your immediate, your immediate area as a writer. Sometimes you just look at somebody who is doing something, even if it's not the whole thing, but something that you desperately want to be better at. And I think that's always what he is to me. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you're talking about like genre, because I remember us saying on last year's episode that it's so hard to define what genre our wives under the sea fits into because it feels mm. very much like a literary, like very much like literary fiction, but it's also horror and it's like this blend of the two. And we we just didn't quite know how you manage that because <laughs> it's it, it reads like so many contemporary novels, but it's so much more than that. And um, I feel like that's just a testament to your talent as a writer that that you were able to to blend those worlds. And when I was asking Lydia at the time, like how she felt you and Stephen King sort of compare like in writing styles, she said that Stephen King manages to like root you in reality. And then all mm. these like incredibly surreal, horrific things start to happen. And that's very similar to what you do is that you really root us in reality. And then these things start to happen, but you just kind of like, we trust you to lead us wherever you're mm. going to take us because we're so rooted in, in their world. I think that's a really nice way of looking at it. Thank you. That's also very kind. <laughs> I think you're so right about Stephen King. I think that something that I think he's very interested in is dailiness. I think he's very interested in mundanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't always agree with him on this, but I think there was a there's a book he wrote about horror. It's a nonfiction book called Dance Macabre. And he was like, in that book, he says that traditional horror um, is very much always a means of reaffirming the status quo and like returning to the norm and I'm not necessarily interested in that in horror because I think that something about horror can also be remaking the status quo and like the queering of horror and things like that is like I'm very interested in but I'm so interested in mundanity and boringness I think there's something that I always kind of want to be writing about people's tedious daily lives and people's dumb little emotions and the way that those things butt up against horrific things and surprising things. Because something that I'm always saying is that 
I'm really interested in the way that actually when horrifying things happen, people don't actually just keep reacting in horror. People usually make an accommodation because that's actually the way people are. It's not always a positive thing. I think it's as indicative of apathy as it is of being adaptable. But I think that that's actually the way people are. I think people mm. just kind of go on. People people prioritize their dailiness over almost everything else as we see in life every single day and I think I'm really interested in that approach to horror and fantasy and sci-fi and I think you know what you were just saying then about people just go on and they go about their dailiness and they they aren't necessarily reacting to these horrifying things that definitely comes through in the book and I don't know how much I'm allowed to give spoilers I mean obviously the book (laughs) came out last year now forever I mean yeah come on guys (laughs) Uh, skip ahead if you don't want to hear a spoiler but you know there's the moment in the book where Leah's eye just (laughs) falls out and the way that Mary reacts is just like it's not something incredibly horrifying she's just like Mm. oh right okay well what am I gonna do now how yeah yeah, like there goes your eye like I'm gonna bandage it up now but doesn't kind of like like you don't expect her to like scream or Mm. like react in a really dramatic way but she kind of just doesn't she just accepts it and go right well you know things can't possibly get any worse or like any more weird (laughs) yeah I think it continues (laughs) it's something I like I say I think that's something I'm so interested in and obviously like sometimes that's also that's a not a writing flaw on my part but something that I am I'm often not comfortable with as a writer is like leaning into a not a big moment but leading into an emotional moment because I often feel like I'm in danger of overwriting if I take it to that place and so I kind of I often cut myself off but I also like to cut away because I think that the thing about horror and I know I've said this before but the thing about horror is not the moment the thing about horror is the anticipation Mm. when you're waiting for a jump scare in a movie the jump scare is a relief the fact that you know there's going to be a jump scare is what's actually terrifying. Before you see the monster is what's terrifying. And so mm. I've never been as interested in the actual moment because the actual moment is, I think, scarier when it is allowed to work upon the reader by themselves. And so I don't want to direct people too much with horrifying images because I kind of want to maintain the scare, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I did want to ask, actually, and this is definitely a spoiler, so... <laughs> <laughs> Just stop listening now <laughs> if you've not read it. <laughs> is I wanted to know where your choice came from to include the eye and the the creature. Was there a kind of did you have a bit of a back and forth with yourself on whether to include that or not? Hmm. I think it, whether to reveal it, sorry. No, 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 completely. I think there had to be something because, I mean, obviously I'm talking about revealing and not revealing and, you know, what's important to uh, allowing the readers to continue to be scared. But I think that at the same time, there is an argument that you can you can suggest and suggest and suggest and if you don't reveal something, you're cheating. Um, and, and so I did feel that quite strongly. But also, I think because it felt like quite a good middle ground for me because I don't want to explain what it is. Because I don't think the point is that Leah and Mateo know what it is and mm. at any point feel that they have come to any sense of understanding. Or maybe Leah has, but she can't put it into words. Maybe it is the thing that is happening to her body, which is the understanding of it, etc. And I think that I needed there to be something that was essentially bigger than the whole page. That's kind of what I wanted the reveal to be. I wanted the idea that you just like, you had this this vision of this thing, which just like didn't fit within the parameters of what had been written at all and didn't fit within people's understanding of it. So it was, it was a really fun challenge to write because it was so outside of my comfort zone of largely cutting away. And it felt like also it had to be the thing that had to be 
fair to the character I think that if she if I had just sent her down there and trapped her down there and then nothing had happened and she'd come back up I felt like that would have been an incredibly cruel thing to do to a character who it's about like knowledge and looking for things and wanting to see things kind of like beyond her ken in a way so I wanted that to be something that and I feel like she wanted that like she wanted that's what she went down for she wanted to be able to see something um and that's why she wants to stay that little bit longer even yeah, though exactly. they've been stuck there for God knows how long. Exactly. Um, and I think that also it was kind of to do with a character who is in a horror plot but doesn't really see herself as being in a horror plot, I think. Mm, because if it had been yeah. Miriam, it would have been completely different. But I think the important thing is that to Leah, this is kind of, this is a romance to her kind of more than it is a horror situation for all that they've been trapped there for so long. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Now, I, I did warn you that I'd probably go off on multiple tangents and I would That's already fine. appear to have done that. I should probably ask you to give our listeners a summary of our lives under the sea. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course. So if, if you've if you've been skipping ahead for 15 minutes, hello. Um, <laughs> our Wives is a novel uh, told from two perspectives. It's told from the perspectives of Mary and Leah, who are a married couple. Leah is a marine biologist who has often been away on trips before. She's been on a submarine expedition to a very deep place, which was supposed to have lasted only a short time, but has lasted a very long time. And the novel is basically told from the perspective of Mary, both reflecting on the time when Leah was away um, and also dealing with her. Now she's come back and there is something very palpably wrong with her. Um, and the other half of the novel is told from Leah's perspective when she was down there in the submarine. Amazing. Thank I you. wanted to ask where the choice came from to include the two perspectives yeah, the um, <laughs> the thing about this novel is that it was supposed to have been written as a prize to myself for having finished another novel. Um, and <laughs> it was supposed to be a short story. And then the novel that I had written got turned down by my editor with good reason. She was completely right. And I was like, oh, God. And so the short story that I was writing was... It was bits and pieces of our lives, but it was only going to be Mary perspective. Um, and it was going to be about like dealing with something that happened when your wife has come back. It was supposed to be just one perspective. And then I realized, firstly, that I think it had enough in it to be turned into a novel. But secondly, I realized that if I was going to do that, because it was quite static, because it's a lot about waiting. It's about waiting in a submarine. It's about waiting in a room, waiting in a flat, basically. And so I realized that if I was going to have movement to it, I think that a lot of the movement was going to have to come from the implied conversation between two voices, because the movement from the novel doesn't come from anything the characters are doing most of the time because they're not going anywhere. And so it had to be this, it had to be this sort of back and forth between the two voices, which I think lends it a rhythm that it otherwise wouldn't have had. And also because it's a novel about a complete failure to communicate. Um, and so I felt that to actually allow the reader to see into a relationship, which was very much stalled, you still needed to have the two voices so you had implied conversation even though they weren't really able to speak um and so yeah it felt completely necessary if I was going to make it longer to have both voices yeah absolutely and I do love reading books from multiple perspectives mm. um but they aren't always executed well um, <laughs> but sometimes it's it's like you can sense that they've not enjoyed writing a specific character yeah. and it feels like you almost get to that and you've 
feel their sense of boredom with that character. Yeah. Well, Whereas I didn't, yeah, but I didn't get that with Lyra Murray. I felt, you know, I, I was totally <laughs> not alert. <laughs> That's the wrong word. You were awake the whole way through. I was awake the whole really way. Well awesome done, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I felt completely immersed in, in both of their worlds at any given time. You know, it never oh. felt, and I think Lydia said this in our episode that like we never left Leah not wanting to go to Miri and we never mm. leave Miri not wanting to go to Leah like we enjoyed kind of going between the two of them but I mm. was curious about your choice of Leah's sections are slightly shorter was that mm -hmm. a conscious choice I think so I mean I think because Leah's Leah's sections for the most part obviously she has she has sections of flashback too but her sections for the most part are, are extremely immediate they're extremely in the now and obviously even more so than Mary she's so trapped that there was very little that on just a practical level there was very little that I could do but also I think that Leah's sections are sort of intended to be haunted house sections because there is I think there is a I guess I think I think this term is overused, but I think that there is a gothic element to them in the way that you know they're in this very they're in this very dark scenario where there are strange noises going on, and what should be familiar has been turned very unfamiliar, and what should be comfortable has been turned very uncomfortable. Um, and so I think that it was it was necessary for the mood for those sections to be shorter. But also, like, to some degree, I think Mary Voice, I, I know that people, very rightly, I think people don't like the fact that women are often asked, is your fiction autobiographical in a way that men aren't? But also, like, mm. that does come from somewhere. And Mary Voice is very much my voice in a way that, like, Leah Voice is not. And so Mary Voice, on the one hand, was a lot easier to write. Uh, but on the other hand, she was much more of a bore to write because I was just, like, stuck with my own voice so much of the time. And so it was quite nice to give Leah Voice to myself as a treat. So I felt like I had to parcel that out, but yeah. <laughs> I you know I love both of their sections and I love both of their voices. And I think, you know, we were speaking earlier about how Stephen King does like the the mundanity, that he mm -hmm. writes the mundanity. And I felt like you did that so beautifully um, with their relationship. You know, there were so many details of their relationship that, I don't know, it just felt so real to me. You know, there's... There's the moment when you, where Marie's talking about the different things in their relationship and she's sort of talking about how their relationship works and you get a real sort of sense of, of their relationship. And, you know, she says that Lee is the kind of person where like she'll she'll put her feet on Marie's and they'll do the Tour de France pedaling back and forth. And it was just things like that that are just like such beautiful details. But we I think we must have said we... We said in our last episode, and I need to shut up reference in this episode and get over myself, but if we'd have taken a shot every time we said how tender this portrayal of their relationship was, we'd have been very drunk. I think we said tender like so many times. It was ridiculous. <laughs> but it really is this tender portrayal of this relationship, you know, mm. and it's it was a real contrast against something so horrific that's happening. And you've got this beautiful, tender portrayal of the two of them. And it was just so... Just so gorgeous. I can't describe it in any other way. I love their relationship so much. <laughs> Thank you. That's so nice. I think it's, it's, I don't know. There's something that I often say, which is I think that horror and romance spring from the same core. Um, because I think the horror and romance are both about fear of death um, and they're both about fear of loss. And they both evoke people's, I think, very primal 
fears and wants in exactly the same way, just from different ends of a horseshoe, essentially. And so I think that if you like to write about horror, you're probably also quite good at writing about romance. And yeah, it was just, I think that I needed one and the other in the novel, and they both felt quite natural kind of to write and to each other. Now, let's talk about research, because as you say, at the end of the book, you are not a marine biologist. Surprise. Yeah, surprise. Um, so, <laughs> so what was the research process like for this novel? It was a lot of Wikipedia. Um, it was, <laughs> to be honest, it's it was interesting because I I was writing about this obviously because I love, I'm, I'm fascinated in the deep sea. I'm fascinated in horrible things that are down there in a very, like, you know, I just, I'm, I'm one of those people who will end up in terrible Wikipedia holes reading about like the bloop and stuff. So <laughs> that's, that's already stuff that was sort of on my radar, so to speak. And I think that, Research itself had to be, on the Leah side of things, obviously, it had to be convincing whilst at the same time not being overwhelming because it's it's very strange. I, again, we're sort of harking back to Stephen King, but like Stephen King writes about writers all the time because that's what he knows about. And you will find that writers often write about writers or yeah. people in like similar situations because actually that's what they know. Mm-hmm. And so when you're writing about somebody analytical, somebody mathematical, someone scientific, something that is just not your area at all. I think the challenge is not so much to get that across as to stop getting that across. People yeah. they have a certain do- job, don't just like talk about that job and nothing else all the time. And so I think that the Leah stuff for me, it needed to be not distracting, but at the same time, I didn't just need to be dropping clangers anywhere. So I think the research for me was very much just up to and no further than the point where people bought it. Like it's stuff like I did unfortunately kind of need to know how the submarine worked, that kind of stuff. And so there was just a lot of lot of Googling like how submarine, how <laughs> and that kind of thing. And then um, but because also I was operating in a fantasy space to some degree, I, I that does immediately take quite a lot of the pressure off. Um but yeah, up to and just uh, no further than the point where it was necessary was the research process for me. <laughs> no, it reading it, it I can only imagine how interesting that research process was and again I'm bringing up the last episode but we were talking about as me and Lydia are both actors we asked each other questions regarding the book and Mm. Lydia asked me who I'd want to play (laughs) in the adaptation of Our Lives Under the Sea who which character I would choose and I chose Leah because I thought that it would be so interesting to mm. be able to immerse myself in the research process and be able to learn all about that. Um, I want to talk about the the center mm-hmm. um, because the center feels like this place that is almost like dystopian and it's this very unsettling sort of ominous place that mm-hmm. we we don't learn too much about and there's clearly a reason for that because they don't learn too much about it and they are the ones that are immersed in all of this. What does the centre represent to you? To me, quite a lot of it was about both the apps. I mean, there's a lot of ways of looking at this really for me, but I think it was really about the horror of bureaucracy and the way that a capitalist concern completely crushes everybody with absolutely no thought for all of them. Because I mean, there's a there's a very, I would say, Elon Musky character at the center of the center um, who was, I needed a person at the middle of it all, but I didn't want that person to be a human in any meaningful way because I just don't think that's that's what it's about. And so much of the research and so much of the research that the center was doing to me was about the complete arbitrariness of it all and the fact of, well, something is there, so we're going to go and poke our noses in. 
But if something goes wrong, we have absolutely no interest in the people. Something that I'm really interested in, in film particularly, is how much of really good sci-fi, when you actually look at it, movies like Aliens, which is one of my favorite movies, it's just about like grunts under the boot of capitalism um, and about how like the second that all of the people and aliens are uh, like abandoned to everybody, everything, nobody is going to help them. And the fact that it's like humanity is just completely comes secondary to some guy who wanted to do something and doesn't really care if it all goes wrong. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was really what it was about for me. See, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because you imagine that the three of them have gone down in the submarine and they are like they have complete autonomy. They have um, autonomy. You imagine that they have this pure purpose, but also yeah. they've been hired to do this thing. Exactly. Um, and I think that's yeah, that's exactly what it is. I wanted it to be like you think that these people have this passion for this thing and there's this whole sort of not artistic purpose, but this whole like extremely kind of like soulful purpose to it for them, because this is something that they all love and have done for such a long time. But actually there is this just like grinding gears of something much larger behind them, which is Mm. both pushing them forwards, but is also then completely going to abandon them. Yeah. And it feels like they're almost being watched like lab rats, Mm -hmm. like they're being observed this whole time. And I mean, there's no indication that they are, but that's how you feel it is. <laughs> that's how you feel this, you know, this this boss is, like you said, he's quite an Elon Musk type character, but he's just this like really grossly relaxed person that's like in this, I don't know, like jacket and jeans, like this casual wear. And he's just kind of like taking it easy. And it's like, even when Yelka, when her sister goes down and she's like demanding to have her sister's possessions um, given to her mm. and he just kind of appears out of nowhere and he's like, it's fine, it's fine, have them. And you're like, who are you? Fuck off. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, you piece of shit. Like, look what you've done. <laughs> yeah, completely. And I think that there is... There is something so fundamental because, like, obviously, I'm I'm dealing with the idea of a billionaire there, and there is something so fundamentally evil about the concept of being a billionaire that how on earth could you have any normal reaction to actual people having an actual issue? So yeah, I could probably ask you several more questions, but I'm aware of time, so I am going to move on to our listener questions. It's the first time we've done this, but I thought (laughs) as we have technically cheated by doing two episodes on this book that I would hand the mic over to our listeners. So I am going to play, two of them have sent voice notes and then two of them have just sent the questions via message. So the first question is by my friend Emma Hines, who is also a writer and she's got her debut novel, The Knowing, coming out in January And I lent her my copy of Our Wives Under the Sea, my signed copy, may I emphasize, and she has lost it. (gasps) Can you even imagine? So she had to send me another copy of Our Wives Under the Sea. An unsigned copy of Our Wives Under the Sea. Unsigned copies. I don't know whether valuable at this point, but yes very sad but she absolutely loved your book clearly as it's gone you know somewhere I think she's hidden it from me I think that's what it is and um she immediately bought Salt Slow and became completely obsessed with you so (laughs) her real question was will you be my friend um but this is (laughs) I'm gonna see if you can hear it first a question for Julia Armfield Hello, Julia. Uh, This is Emma Hines. I'm so excited to be asking you a question via several virtual devices, but all the same. Uh, My question is, in your 
short story collection, you also dabble in the magic and wonder and mystery and terror of creatures beneath the deep. And then again, in Our Wives Under the Sea, it's a theme that seems to reoccur in your work. So I would love to know where your fascination with things beneath the deep began and if um, your short story that you that you have in Soul Slow is, is kind of a precursor to Our Wives Under the Sea and how that began. I hope you have a wonderful time with Hannah and I look forward to meeting you one day. Bye. Well, that's a great question. I love that. Yeah, I think it's... I think you will find so much of the time that actually writers have about four preoccupations and just return to them over and over again. And I think <laughs> I unfortunately now I deeply have a habit of just like writing really wet books. Um, and I've kind of done it again um, for the next one. But I think that something that I, I wrote fairly recently, and this isn't the whole reason why I do it, but I'm, I became really interested when people pointed out that I did this. I became really interested in like how much of specifically like lesbian and queer women's fiction off circles around the sea or like you know because the Sarah Waters novels are often like set by the sea there are so many movies like like Portrait of a uh, Lady on Fire and things like that which are set in kind of seaside settings things like oh god stuff like like My Summer of Love stuff like oh god even like ur texts like Sugar Rush <laughs> which are not, like obviously not great in retrospect but also again set by the sea and I'm very interested in the sea as a sort of transitional liminal space I think and the way that it's so much about being one thing on the surface and another thing underneath the surface is an image that I really like to play with quite a lot and which I think comes to the fore quite a lot in our wives there's a scene in our wives uh where Mary is looking back on when they went and they saw uh, this thing called the sea lung and the novel was called sea lung at one point when it's kind of like when the water is thrown to the surface and it freezes so quickly that it becomes this this weird like ice surface just on the top of the sea and how it looks like you could walk on it but then if you walked on it you would fall and I'm interested in that I'm interested in things being many different things and appearance and that kind of thing and so I think that's often what comes through or that's the the underlying thing that I'm interested in when I am interested in the sea if that makes sense absolutely I love that about being something different on the surface to underneath mm-hmm. the surface I think that's a beautiful image um and I know that Emma will be delighted that you've mentioned Sarah Waters who is one go. of her favorite authors so. <laughs> <laughs> okay I will go on to the next question so our friend Meg who who is a book blogger on Instagram at Megan a book says she asked the question about the sea and the ocean you've already answered that is the short length of your books a conscious choice um I think I'm just lazy honestly <laughs> I'm not sure that I have that much more to say in those spaces I think that I mean it's on a more serious note I think that operating within horror or horror adjacent spaces lends itself to the short form because there is such a suspension of disbelief that you're already asking your audience to do that I think dragging it out over a very long period is is sometimes counterproductive to the atmosphere and the tone that you are trying to um that you're trying to hold on to and I think also with our wives particularly because it was so static in so many ways I think it would have become I think it's allowed to remain atmospheric but if it had been longer, it would have become stifling very, very quickly. And I think some people did find it stifling. And that's obviously all, all kind of a taste thing. But I'm writing the thing that's I've uh, my next novel is longer, not much longer, but it is definitely longer. And it's interesting because it was possible for that to happen, firstly, because I have more characters, but also because there is a lot more movement. There is a lot more world. There is a lot more going on in general. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so I think that so much of the time your story just dictates, it dictates the form, honestly, and your characters dictate the form. And there were so few pieces for Mary and Leah to go that it had to be quite brief. I did actually want to ask, what period of time were you writing this, um, this novel? <laughs> I wrote Our Wives between March and December of 2020. That makes uh, so much sense. <laughs> so it was like hard COVID, no one was going anywhere. And it was... I think that it's very strange. You don't really think of yourself as having written a COVID book until you look back on it and realize that it's about two people being trapped in a room, essentially. And it was it was a it was a very easy writing experience in some ways because I I also have a full time job and I wasn't furloughed from it, but I was doing that job entirely from home. And so you just kind of rolled from one sofa to the other at five o'clock to start writing, and you didn't have anything else to do. Whereas now writing the new one, obviously I think the fact that there is so much more world and so much more people comes from the fact that there is again so much more world and so many more people that I want to write about and that I'm reflecting but it's much much harder to write because I'm working at home and in the office but also just like seeing people again and doing things again and so writing becomes homework in a way that it kind of wasn't um during our wives so it was a different experience but yeah yeah I mean your experience of isolation definitely came through (laughs) (laughs) Uh, were you also like Mary in the you know you would sometimes crawl under the desk on your lunch breaks and fall asleep because <laughs> that's all um, no, I can understand how she got there honestly <laughs> okay I'm going to go on to the next question which is by Georgia hey Georgia is that what you say bye from Georgia from Georgia that's better <laughs> so this is Georgia at Georgia does books who is also a book blogger on Instagram uh, Georgia said I'm very excited for your next novel, Private Rights. What made you want to set this in a future world ravaged by the effects of climate change? And does it feature a similar disturbing undercurrent that we experienced in our wives under the sea? And also send me a proof. <laughs> yes, fine. <laughs> I will. No, it's, um, it is, again, I think it's a very wet book because it's about a situation where it has just been raining for a very, very, very long time. And... I think it was something that I've always been very interested in is writing things just a little bit skew with, just a little bit like slanted. I didn't want, I don't want to do hard sci-fi. I don't want to do hard, what do I mean? I don't want to do like hard realism in terms of what I'm writing about in the future, but, but both because I don't think I'm clever enough, but also just because it would depress me too much. And so I wanted to take a look at an idea of climate change, but not necessarily the climate change that we are experiencing. But I think what I wanted to do, and again, this is something you and I have already discussed, is I'm so interested in just like how absolutely boring the end of the world is absolutely going to be. Like it's going to be like apocalypse time and your boss is still going to text you being like, come in if you can. Um, so true you've got a sad lamp and you're going to be fine and I think that that's that's what I was interested in when I started looking around for something to do I wanted to talk about just like the grimy grinding end of the world and how everything is sort of constructed not in a very good way like there's going to be no like decent public services and no decent infrastructure but things are still going to be set up to support capitalism in some way and allow you to still get into the office and I wanted to talk about that in conjunction with like how it is still to love and grieve and like be a queer person and what it's like to go to the dyke night at the end of the world. And I think I was just, I was interested in all of that and the way that like people retain humanity when nothing is set up to retain humanity. Basically, that's what I wanted to write about. I'm so excited to read this next book. <laughs> I'm so excited to disappoint you all night long. I'm sure it will be. <laughs> 
stop. That will not happen. Okay, I'm going to... Our last question. Here we go. So this is from Alice, who is also a book blogger on Instagram, at Most Ardently Alice. Hi, Julia. My question to you is, I have become more and more over the years a rereader. Um, it's not something I used to do that often, but more and more I like to return to my favourite books that bring me comfort um, and also just to kind of help establish that, yes, this is definitely a favourite book of mine. And I wondered what those books are for you and whether you enjoy rereading books or if you also just believe there are too many books in the world that you can't possibly return to one a second time. Oh yeah, I'm a massive, massive rereader. I'm a massive rewatcher. Everything I have, I've reread and rewatched ten thousand times. I um, it's interesting as it depends where I am in the writing process sometimes because often I will return to books which are not necessarily my favorites in any meaningful way, but are so important to me when I'm editing or so important when I'm trying to get into a rhythm. Um, I return to um, I return to Joan Didion a lot actually when I need to get into a certain tone. I've reread Blue Nights so many times because I'm very interested in the very like sort of fragmented way she talks about grief, and I just think that I just think her sentences are just astonishing. I reread my favorite book. I think is Geek Love by Catherine Dunn, which. I've reread a lot and every time I've reread it I've been older and every time I've cried more um it's so it's so utterly distressing in so many ways and so so sad and so beautiful and I just love it so much obviously I've reread The Secret History a bunch of times um because that's just what you do and I'm reading I'm rereading Lolita right now which I had not read since I was 16 which is fascinating and I think that as a writer, sometimes rereading is about trying to figure out how something works, how something which you know is good works and how you can kind of take that apart and figure it out. But a lot of the time rereading for me is just like, oh, I just want to be with something that I can trust. Um, and that's how I feel about it. So, yeah. Amazing. And there's loads of great recommendations in there as well. So thank you. That was all of our listener questions. So thank you to our listeners that submitted those. I am really sad that we have come to the end of our <laughs> recording I want to keep you forever because I've absolutely loved chatting to you and having you on the podcast Me too. so thank you so much Our Wives Under the Sea is published by Picador and is out now it's actually out in both hardback and paperback and uh, Private Rights is published by Faber Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate wow oh my gosh that's embarrassing they both begin with an F technically it's okay yeah Okay, <laughs> Private Rights is published by Fourth Estate. And is it out in June? Out in June. I'm so impatient. That's not good enough. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> I've done my bit. They have to publish it now. <laughs> I'm just impatiently here tapping my foot. Um, but Julia, thank you so much for coming on a pair of bookends. And congratulations on winning this year's Polari Prize. Thank you so much. It was so nice to speak to you. And thank you listeners for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe as it helps to boost us in the charts. And Julia, our listeners can follow us at A Pair of Bookends Pod on Instagram and at A Pair of Bookends on Twitter and TikTok. Where can our listeners follow you? Oh, you can follow me on Instagram at Julia K. Armfield. And I think on Twitter, we're going to call it Twitter because no one calls it X. Um, and I think on Twitter so no it's Julia Armfield. But my wife has locked me out of the account um, because it's it's simply much better for my mental health. So um, I am technically there if you want to follow me there. I love well. that. I'm doing this for your own good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. Goodbye.